Welcome to Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. We're glad that you could join us again this week as we continue our journey through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. This week we are looking at lesson number nine, which is living wisely. How can we live wisely in this present day? We want to see what we can learn about that. And before we delve into this lesson, let's do what we always do, and that's spend a moment in prayer to ask the Lord to bless us. Father, we ask that you will bless us as we are digging into the book of Ephesians. Help us to understand the significance of the themes that are found there and how these themes and teachings apply to us today so that our lives can be improved as a result. We ask that you'll bless our time together again this week, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're happy to have back with us again the author of this quarter's Sabbath School lesson, Dr. John McVeigh. He's the president of Walla Walla University. John, welcome back once again. Thank you, Eric, for sharing this journey through Ephesians with me. It's really exciting, and we've learned a lot. We're on week number nine now. We've still got a few more to go. We've got 14 total uh, this quarter, which is interesting for a quarter. Usually we think of a quarter with 13, but we're blessed with an extra lesson this go-round. But this week we're looking at lesson nine, Living Wisely. And we're going to be spending some time in Ephesians chapter 5 this week. And Ephesians chapter 5 is a rather interesting chapter. They're all interesting, but Ephesians 5, sometimes people read it and they go, what's the point? This doesn't seem to to kind of fit together. The first part of Ephesians chapter 5 could seem like uh, just a set of jumbled, miscellaneous ideas or commands. How, How does this all fit together? Paul sometimes thinks on a little higher level than we give him credit for. And some things that (laughs) I think Peter said, some things he says are a little confusing. (laughs) So we don't want to be confused by this. We want to make sense of it. What do we make sense? How do we make sense of this apparently jumbled list of commands? It's a great question. Now, we're in the second half of the letter, right? And we we know now that we're expecting Paul to give us nitty-gritty advice on the Christian life because that's what he tends to do in the second half of, of his letter. And this, this gets pretty nitty-gritty here, doesn't it? Uh, but how does it, hang, how does it hang together? I think maybe what, what helps us would be two things. Uh, we, we want to know, first of all, what is his perspective? What is his perspective? Okay. So what helps me here is verses 15 and 16, to, to jump down there. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So his perspective here, it seems to me, is of the end time. That is, he believes Christ is coming very soon. He wants, he's encouraging Christian believers to live in the light of Christ's soon return, right? And he uses a very, very interesting word here, a a Greek word that means to snap up the bargains, to snap up the bargains. So I was once at a a big, one of these big conventions in the convention hall shopping for books about the Bible, and I'm poking around the books, and I hear the two clerks talking to each other, and one says, shall we do it for one dollar or two? And I knew we were getting to the end of the convention. They didn't want to take those books home. They're going to sell all the books off. But I had an advanced message, see. So I chose the books I wanted. And when they announced all the books were $1, 
I stepped up to the cash register with my big stack of books, right? Uh, you're probably a book lover, too, and you, I, you, you can understand that. My wife doesn't appreciate it, but yes, yeah, I you am. You can understand that moment. So, so Paul is saying, as, as Christians, the perspective of this passage that he's taking is that we're living in the end time, and we're using that time to snap up the bargains that are on offer as we look toward Christ's return. That's a neat perspective, isn't it? It really is. You know, so there's something of value here that Paul is, is referring to then. So that's the perspective. And then there's the tone that I'd point out. Uh, Paul here is, is reusing some, some well-worn themes uh, that I would call battlefield themes. Uh, stay awake, uh, don't be involved in darkness, and all these kinds of things are things that he's used earlier in his epistles to talk about Christian discipleship under the imagery of battle and being a good soldier. Now, he's going to really come to that in chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, but he's already preparing the way. And so his perspective is of the end time. His tone is the urgent one of the battlefield. So rather than seeing chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, as just a jumbled set of commands. It's not a random list of exhortations, but it's Paul's end-time, urgent instructions to combatants in the great controversy. So if I come to this list of commands from that perspective, I'm able to appreciate what Paul is doing here. So all of those commands then become important, they become practical, they become uh, marching orders, preparatory uh, commands, as it were, to go into into this battle that we're in right now. Exactly. He's trying to prepare us with some concrete uh, exhortations, commands. <laughs> do this. Don't do this. Do this. Uh, and 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 we should accept them as combatants in the cosmic conflict. Uh, these are instructions for us. Urgent end time battlefield instructions. That helps me listen. So that makes, makes these 20 verses make a whole lot more sense. Let's, let's kind of go through these 20 verses, maybe not individually each one. We'll see how it goes. But what are some of the major themes that we find outlined in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 20? What are the major themes we find there? Well, there is this battlefield motif in Revelation and here. So, that uh, yeah. Uh, you know, he starts off in, in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, with what might be called an, an overarching call. He invites the believers in Ephesus and invites us today to imitate God. Now, that's quite a mouthful, isn't it? Really? I'm supposed to imitate God? What, what, in what ways should I imitate that, God? That as seems a like a rather high bar for Does. us to aspire to. But then he, then he gives the phrase, as beloved children. So as children would admire a, a parent and, and try to behave like that, that parent, this is, this is a relational image then. Uh, we're not trying to match God's resources or the scope of the salvation he offers the world or any of that, but we're admiring his character. And in our own sphere, we're wishing to imitate the wondrous grace that we see God granting humankind, and to do that in our relationships uh, with others. And then he says in verse 2, and walk in love. Walk, of course, is a, 
is a good Hebrew metaphor for live. So, so live, but live as, as a journey. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So in our relationships with others, we are, we are not to be egotists. We are not to say, it's me, me, me. We are to be self-sacrificing as Christ was. Imitate God, uh, follow on, track on, live into the self-sacrifice of, of Jesus himself. Now, before we move on to the three major segments of our passage, it's probably good to pause there, Eric, and remember we've been talking about the great theme of Ephesians, right? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. God's plan for the fullness of time to unite everything in Christ, to unite everything. So now he's, he's talking here about the kind of behaviors that will foster disunity. Don't do those. And the kind of behaviors that will foster unity, do these instead. You see what he's trying trying to do? Makes a lot of sense. So that's the, the first little bit here. What about as we keep working down through this? Verses 3 through 6, kind of a, he, he addresses a different theme here. What do we see there? He has some really tart, forthright words about sexual immorality here. And I think we need to read these verses in the light of the whole. In verses 18 through 20, at the end of our passage, we'll come to his description of the church in worship. I think he has the church, particularly the church assembled together uh, in worship, in mind here. And he is, he is discussing something that many of us have seen far too active in Christian congregations, and that is that sexual immorality within the Christian community can truly damage, if not totally destroy, the unity of a congregation. And, and so he's, he's warning them against that. His standards are very high, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, something he seems to come back to down in verse 12. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they, pagan Gentiles, do in secret. These kinds of things ought not to even be named whispered, named, uttered among you. That would be absent from the Christian fellowship. You see? So this is a, a very powerful passage here. And he's, he doesn't stop there. He continues going on. Yeah. Uh, no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking. All of that is out of place. And he, he wants to offer a substitute. And that's the substitute of thanksgiving. So this is a, a much preferred alternative, and, and we yes. want to dig into this uh, a little bit more, too. How, what else do we see here in, uh, in these themes that we're looking at? Well, there are two additional themes, and uh, in, in verses 7 through 14, Paul is interested here on, on Christian witness, the witness of Christians to the wider community. And so he'll, he'll spend a good deal of time under some interesting imagery talking about that. And then he concludes the, the passage with those verses I referred to a moment ago, verses 18 through 20, and he calls for strategic worship in evil days. So one way to summarize these three big themes, verses 3 through 6, a call for sexual purity in immoral days, verses 7 through 14, a call for Christian witness in dark days, and verses 15 through 20, a call for strategic worship in the last days. 
And if we organize that and recall his perspective, which is the second coming, and his tone, urgent battlefield instructions, that comes together to help us see rich meaning in our passage. So what we're seeing here are clear instructions for not just people in Paul's day, but our day, those upon whom the ends of the world are come. Uh, That's you and me living today. And so Paul is giving us some very clear advice, some advice is probably not even strong enough, some (laughs) commands, exhortations of how to live in the last days of Earth's history. So if you wanted a a list of, of do's and do nots, well, here's one list of do's and do nots, and the reasons why are so very important. If you want to dig more deeply into this quarter's lesson, understand it uh, more thoroughly, make sure that you pick up the companion book to this quarter's Sabbath School lesson. It is called Ephesians by Dr. John McVeigh. You will find this at itiswritten.shop. Again, that's itiswritten.shop. Just look for the companion book to this quarter's Sabbath School lesson, and you will find so much more than was able to be fit into the study guide itself. You don't want to miss an opportunity to learn more about Christ and his plan for you in these last days by picking up that book. In just a moment, we're going to come back as we continue looking here at chapter 5 and living wisely in the last days of Earth's history. We'll be right back. It was home to some of the most magnificent temples in the ancient world. Temples built to honor Artemis, Hadrian, Serapis, and the Roman Emperor Domitian. And surrounded by rampant idol and emperor worship, a small band of Christians formed their own church in the city of Ephesus. Maintaining their faith in the midst of this pagan culture was anything but easy. Today, only ruins remain of those once spectacular structures. But the story of Ephesus lives on, continuing to hold both historical and spiritual significance. Join us as we explore the messages of Jesus to the seven churches of Revelation and discover God's messages to the church of the past and the church of today. The Seven Churches of Revelation, Ephesus, brought to you by It Is Written TV. Welcome back to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We are looking at lesson number nine this week, looking at how we can live wisely in our days. John, I want to come back to something we were just talking about a moment ago, and that is about how we can be more effective witnesses in the days in which we live, the lives that we are living right now. Paul talks about that a fair bit here in chapter five. What can we learn from that? And especially, I want to uh, kind of delve into this this very short hymn that Paul talks about in verse number 14, where he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So how can we be these witnesses that God is calling us to be through the writings of Paul? And what about that, that short hymn right there? So as we learned uh, earlier, Paul is giving us urgent, end-time, battlefield counsel here. And it's kind of rapid fire, do this, don't do this. Um, and so we come here to an, an interesting segment in verses 7 through 14. It's, it's quite detailed. It has some very poetic imagery that can be a little bit difficult to understand. 
But in essence, what Paul is saying is there is no time like the present. <laughs> the end time, battlefield, cosmic conflict context, there is no time like this one to let your light shine, to let people know what God's grand plan is to unite everything in Christ. You're part of that plan, and you need to let that idea out and, and let it go into your community and share it with others. That's essentially what he's doing here. And, and that's pretty powerful because, again, he's using this, this light imagery of what he wants us to be, what he calls us to be uh, in, this, uh, in this passage. So very, very powerful. Believers are to, be, are to walk in the light. They're to walk as children of the light. Uh, they're, tried, they're, they're to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Verse 11 can be a little troubling, Eric. Uh, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And that can, that can give the idea that we're supposed to move around our communities pointing out evil and, and accusing people of, of foolishness and sin. Uh, if you study carefully what he's doing, he talks about, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And he's very interested, again, verse 10, in us finding out what pleases God. So rather than a kind of uh, uh, what Ill, ill-mannered, uh, accusatory uh, means of witness, it's probably better for us to see him doing something rather different than that. He instead iman- imagines uh, Christian believers uh, employing what I would call a show-forth God's goodness strategy, exhibiting a God-honoring lifestyle for all to see. And he argues here that such a strategy uh, holds promise of light-bathed transformation. So uh, it, it's, it's beautiful what he says here, verse 13, but when anything is exposed by the light, by your showing forth a goodness of God strategy, by putting forth a God-honoring lifestyle for all to see, uh, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. So it, it's, it's possible, Paul says, that by your, your witness, it can have a transforming difference in the lives of your pagan Gentile neighbors. Pretty powerful stuff. That is powerful stuff. So less an antagonistic approach to these things and more a let Christ's light shine through you uh, sort of an approach. I think as we study carefully the imagery here, that's, that's exactly what's going on. And, and then you mentioned verse 14. Uh, and you, in, in many modern translations, you see it set, a, set apart as, as poetic or hymnic, like a hymn in its, in its words. And it's, it's a beautiful little piece. So he's coming to the end of this brief segment on the need for Christian witness and how to go about Christian witness. And, and here's this hymn, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I love those words. It's a beautiful little snippet. Some think it might have been in the early Christian hymnal, if you will, a, a hymn that they sang, and he's, he's simply quoting a part of it to support his argument here. The question is, is that little hymn addressed to the unbeliever or is it addressed to the believer? And the answer for me is in the realization that he is drawing on Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3. And if you go back to that passage, you see it's addressed to God, God's people encouraging their witness. 
And so I think the, the sleeper here is the Christian disciple who is not as active in witness as Paul would like her or him to be. And so it's actually sung to us. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And if that's the case, if I'm reading the the hymn uh, well there, appropriately, it it gives a a really nice conclusion here uh, about what, what is going on. The light that we will share with others will be refracted light. Christ promises to shine into our lives His light, then, is the light that moves forth from us to bless others. We don't have to create some witness. We just need to participate here with Christ shining his light, his refracted light, out through our lives and witness. It reminds me very much of what Jesus said back in Matthew 5. He said, let your light so shine. So not make your light shine, but just let it. Let your light shine. And and that light, as you mentioned, is reflected off of from Christ off of us and onto the pathways of others. Very, very powerful. We run into a, another section down here, verses 15 through 20, where Paul is kind of talking about what we might call strategic worship. Hmm. How, can we, how can we practice that? What does strategic worship look like for, for people in Paul's day and for us today? Paul seems to be doing an interesting contrast here, Eric, and let me remind you of a feature of first century life, Greco-Roman life. Uh, the big deal for for many in society, were evening meals. Uh, the, the technical term was symposia. And this was a particular way of having a party that involved all sorts of things, including some chatter conversation around the, the dinner table, if you will. But there were a lot of other things that were part of, of that setting. And Paul seems to mention those as he begins this. Do not get drunk with wine, verse 18, for that is debauchery. So he's imagining these ancient symposia which had kind of embedded in them a, a variety of immoral actions and, and possibilities that occurred. And it, it was a party to end all parties, and it was often a very debauched occasion. And Paul is evoking that, as he seemed to be evoking that up in verses 4 and 5 as well. And And now he's replacing that. So he's saying, don't when, when you get that, that invitation to a, a dinner party, don't go. <laughs> but I have a substitute for you, he says. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart and so on. He's, he's then offering Christian worship as the substitute for pagan parties. You see what he's doing? And it's, it's, it's a rather beautiful and, a, and amazing contrast. So we don't have to go the way of the world. There is an alternative for the Christian. Absolutely. And Paul is helping us to see the, the many benefits of that alternative as opposed to the supposed benefits of what the world has to offer. Very powerful. And uh, continuing with that, that theme of worship and what because, because his perspective here is the second coming and his tone is the battlefield, this is urgent end-time worship. So we can, we can think carefully about urgent end-time worship, and we can learn some things about it. For Paul, battlefield worship, if I can call it that, is shared corporate worship. 
shared corporate worship, which Paul regards as a, a necessary survival strategy for the end time. The, if, if you're going to make it through the end time, you need to participate in shared corporate worship, which exhibits the feature that, features that Paul discusses here. And I think we can go through the passage and we can see some, some principles of urgent battlefield end time Christian worship that can be important to us. So something very significant that Paul says needs to be a part of the Christian walk, and I think that's very profound for today because a lot of people want to exist on their own as Christians, but Paul says, no, that's not part of of God's program. It's about shared corporate Christian worship. John, there's something else I want to hit before we uh, finish this week's lesson, and that is something that Paul touches on in a couple of different verses in this passage. In verse 10, he says, "...try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord." And in verse 17, he says, understand what the will of the Lord is. Well, let's get down to a basic question here. How do we know what the will of God is? How can we discern the will of God? Many are trying to find an answer to that question today. And I think our passage gives us some, some good, good help there, some, some good counsel. First of all, if you take those two verses together, it seems to me that Paul has in mind not so much a flash of insight as a process. Uh, living into the understanding of God's will, pondering and praying and meditating over it. This is not a momentary flash of insight. This is a, a process in which we are prayerfully engaged, and it may take some time for us to understand what pleases God. It may take some time for us to understand what, what God's will is. If, if you look at the passage as a whole through this lens, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, uh, I see here three key words of counsel that can be derived on this idea of how, how do I really know what's God, what God's will is. Number one goes back to verses one and two. We're to be imitators of God. We're to follow the self-sacrificial pattern of Christ. So a principle would be observe carefully the pattern, capital P. Imitate God. Imitate Christ. Observe the pattern. Uh, a second insight here would be to reflect on the lifestyles of unbelievers as a negative ex- exhibit of, as, of, of how not to live. So he has a lot to say, don't do this, and, and he's naming pagan lifestyles. So think about those lifestyles. Think about the impact of those behaviors and those habits on friends and neighbors. So consider carefully the negative exhibit of how not to live. And then a, a third one would be, Learn with fellow believers. So verses 18 through 20, this beautiful description of early Christian worship, learn with believers. Don't try to figure this out on your own. You need the enrichment, the shoulder-to-shoulder fellowship with the saints if you're really going to tackle this project of understanding, not just knowing in a mathematical sense, but living into and experiencing and understanding God's will You need other Christian disciples alongside you. Phenomenal advice from from Paul. Well, ultimately from God. We trust that this week has been a blessing to you about learning how to live wisely in our day. And we look forward to seeing you again next week as we continue our study of the book of Ephesians, looking at lesson number 10. Until then, God bless you, and we'll see you next time on Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written.